I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. What is up, podcast fam? Happy Monday. Very excited to kick off your week with this episode today with the one and only Doug Cartwright, speaker, author, and CEO and founder of The Daily Shifts, an online company dedicated to inspiring lasting transformation of the mind, body, and soul. The Daily Shifts was born from Doug's personal journey of introspection and healing. Before we jump into this episode, this episode today is brought to you by DrinkMonday.co. DrinkMonday.co sells a line of alcohol-free spirits. I recently tried both the whiskey and the gin. They are delicious. If you want to get down, drink some alcohol without the alcohol, I highly recommend checking it out. DrinkMonday.co. It is absolutely delicious. Zero calories, zero sugar, gluten-free, vegan, no alcohol, but tastes delicious. Check out DrinkMonday.co. Very excited to be coming out with this episode today. Doug's got a fascinating story. Doug's story is a fascinating one to me. Doug found his way into participating in psychedelic ceremonies in an effort to try to find personal healing. He flew across the world to work with spiritual gurus in Bali, went to rituals like Burning Man, and he was trying to figure out how to find happiness. You know, he was 20-something years old, ex-Mormon, ex-millionaire, living deeply unfulfilled life. And after trying a bunch of things, he found his way into plant medicine. And this episode is his story, a psychedelic journey into meditation, silent retreats, self-healing, and how he used plants to find the truth and ultimately be able to go and build a life he loves. We dive into a little bit of a story of grief and losing his dad, how his perspective on life has shifted as a result of the plant medicine, and how it's helped him heal, grieve, and build an amazing life. So with that, enjoy. Doug, thanks so much for coming on the Bits of Gold podcast today. Dan, thanks for having me. I am so pumped to have you on. I was telling you, I started reading the PDF of your book, and it's very unlike me, but I really had a tough time putting it down. So really excited to have you on to share your story and to jump into it. Awesome. Yeah. It's been a journey to say the least. So before we jump into it, I just want to say I absolutely love the title of your book. Holy shit, we're alive. Yeah. Thank you. It was a struggle to kind of find the title because the title is so important. I wanted something that was punchy and I had another title for it that actually might be the title. If I do another book, that'll be that other title. But you know, when you just know, when you find the, an idea or a thought and you're like, boom, that's it. I was kind of struggling to find the title of this book. And I'm thinking about my experience and my journey and my kind of my awakening. And I was reviewing, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but I uh, participated in some ayahuasca ceremonies and we'll dive into ayahuasca. But I was reviewing some of my notes from one of those ceremonies and had this really incredible experience where I felt like I was you know, this is going to sound weird, but like I was like reborn and kind of like put back into my body without any trauma or distress or confusion or like, you know, when we get so caught up in our mind, I just felt what it was like to be alive. And my thought was like, holy shit, this is what it feels like to be alive. Like, this is incredible. And I had that note, like, holy shit, we're alive. And when I saw that note, I'm like, boom, that's it. That's the title <laughs> of my book. What does that really mean to you? Holy shit, we're alive. Yeah, I think, and we'll dive into the story, but I grew up Mormon in Utah in a very conservative white neighborhood in like a bubble in a sense and was kind of like your life was kind of laid out for you like you need to do this go to school and get good grades and go on like your Mormon mission and then go to college and then get married and then have kids you know it's like it's very like laid out and along my journey of life and you know and 
I made a lot of money in my early 20s and and I had you have like these traumatic experiences. Life does not go the way you think it's supposed to. And I think everyone can agree with that. Like you had this vision of how you think your life was going to go and it didn't go that way. And we've had difficult experiences and we have difficult traumas and we get so wrapped up in our heads about how life should be. And you really see that clash like in, you know, politics and social justice. There's a lot of differing opinions and there's this big clash, but I learned through my journey of healing and going through this experience that I believe that our natural state as human beings, if you remove all the trauma, remove the blockages, remove the pain, remove the suffering, if you just remove it, right, our natural state is love and enthusiasm and connection and joy. And and it's like this, holy shit, we're alive mentality. And I believe at our core, all of us have that. But once we can remove the stuff holding us back, these neurotic thoughts in our head all the time, if you can just get rid of those, you'll naturally express that sort of holy shit, we're alive mentality. Mm, I love that. Let's jump into a little bit about your story, just so our listeners can have a little bit of context on what led you to writing the book. So maybe you could take us back to wherever the beginning is for you. Yeah. So I think a good place to start was, you know, I grew up upper middle class, Utah, everyone was white, everyone was Mormon. And it's like I was saying, like, your life is kind of planned out. And I was like captain of the football team in my high school. I was student body vice president and had a really great childhood to that point, but was really very close minded in this bubble there. And there comes this point in the Mormon church where there's this coming of age ritual where it's you go get called to be sent on like your Mormon mission. It's where like you're an elder and for two years you leave, you get called to serve. You know, you could be Boise, Idaho, or you could go Auckland, New Zealand, and you kind of just get sent in for two years. All you do is proselyte and try and convert people to the Mormon church. You're not on social media. You can't watch TV. You don't listen to music. You don't play video games. And it's literally for two years straight focus. How old are you when, when that's going on? It's 19 to 21. Male or female? The rules have kind of changed. I think females go a little bit older. In the church culture, females like have a choice. It's like 50-50. But if you're a male it's like expected for you to go. Like if you don't go, it's like that shame and guilt. And like, you kind of look down upon if you don't go. What about college? Yeah. It's like, put it on hold. So you put a college on hold to go on the mission. To do your service mission. Yeah. It's a really big deal. And like, as you're being raised in the church, there's a lot of pressure on you to go. And it's, you're, it's always in the back of your mind, especially through junior high and high school. And you're really, it's angled. It's, it's kind of messed up, but it's like, you're taught that ultimate goal of life in Mormonism is to make it to the celestial kingdom, which in Mormonism, they believe in three heavens and there's like tears and the highest kingdom of heaven. You are infinity for eternity with your whole family, with God's presence. And it's like pure bliss, ecstasy, euphoria. And the way to get there is you have to get married in the temple. That's why there's temples across the country, those Mormon temples. And you have to get married in the temple to a beautiful young girl who wants to marry you. And you're kind of taught that if you don't go on your mission, that girls won't want to marry you. Like mm. girls only want to marry return missionaries. And so like, there's this big pressure. It's like, if I don't do my mission that I'm not going to get married and I'm not going to have kids. And then I'm not going to end up of heaven with God. And so like, there's this immense pressure to go do your mission. Would you say that people like where you grew up in your community was everyone Mormon? I would say, yeah, majority of people are Mormon. It's like 85, 90% of my friends are Mormon. Wow. So I guess you, you don't really know, like, what's your familiarity at that point in your life with what else is out in the world and just how other people might perceive the world differently, etc. It's such a bubble. And I grew up, you know, it's different now because social media, but we didn't have Instagram when I was in junior high or high school. So it's not like I'm, you're connecting with other people. I mean, MySpace came out when I was like a junior in high school. So it's like, you're not connecting with other people socially on the internet. So you're really just confined to your school, right? And I had like one friend that was Greek Orthodox. And then I had like another friend who I don't know what church you went to, but everyone else was Mormon. And it's almost like it's a really, where I grew up at least, it was very clicky. It was either like you're Mormon and you're in, or you're like, if you're not Mormon, it's like you're the black sheep. So like all the wow. cool kids are Mormon. All the cheerleaders are Mormon. Everyone on the football team's Mormon, like feels cultish. Yeah. And so there's so much pressure to go do the mission and go do this coming of age ritual. And there's a lot of pressure to do it. And if, if you don't do it, then it's like you're outcast and you're, it's frowned upon. Wow. So I'll let you just go on with your story, mm -hmm. but you went on your service mission. Yeah. So 
there's a standard of living requirements, like your worthiness that's expected, you're supposed to abide by before you go to make sure your like soul is pure enough to spread the message of Mormonism. So before you leave, there's no drinking, there's no caffeine, there's no no pornography, there's no intimacy with you know the opposite sex by any means. And you have to like have like a clean record in a sense before you go on your mission. And so I actually had a girlfriend before I left. And it was two nights before I'm supposed to leave on my mission. And I've already done like the big farewell party. I've got the ticket booked. I've like deferred going to college for a semester. Like I packed up my room, everything's set to go. Like I'm going. And two nights before I left, it was kind of like I was saying this goodbye moment to my girlfriend. Cause it's like, I'm not going to see her for two years. And the only way I can communicate with her is, you know, writing emails once a week. And we were saying goodbye. And we have like this intimate moment and I broke the rules. And afterwards I was like, oh shit, like I've messed up. But it was so much shame and guilt. I'm like, I can't tell him now because then I'll have to like wait another six months and my whole life will be derailed. So I just swept it under the rug and didn't tell anyone and then went out on my Mormon mission. And nine months in, just the guilt and the shame like was just overbearing. So finally, I confessed and came clean because I just was dealing with so much guilt. And I actually got sent home from my mission. They kicked me off like dishonorably. And coming home from a mission in my community is like big time shame. Like a lot of people will like hide in their basements and like will make up an excuse like they had to be medically released because they had a medical issue. But like, no, I straight up was sent home dishonorably because I lied about my worthiness. And so all of a sudden I'm home. And it was kind of the first time in my life where I was like, oh shit, like I'm not an accepted member of my community anymore. And I'm kind of the villain. And I'm like, not right with God. And that's when like things started. That was the first shift in my life where it's like, okay, life isn't going as it's supposed to. Wow. It sounds like you have tremendous pressure put on you by society or your peers and I guess your community. Yeah. And it was really intense. And it's so interesting because I felt like I had to earn myself, earn the validation of my community and where it really starts as I, you know, as I went deeper into self-awareness where this really actually started, the, this drive to be validated is I grew up as the fat kid and I was overweight in elementary school and junior high and high school. And I remember when I was in second grade, I was teased for being fat. And in that moment, when you're in second grade, you're not self-aware. You're not comparing your bodies. Like there's none of that game is happening yet. And these older kids made fun of me for being the fat kid. And I remember in that moment, I remember exactly where I was at recess in the exact experience in that moment, I then created a narrative in my head that something was wrong with me. It's like, Oh my gosh, if I'm the fat kid, then something must be wrong with me. And if something is wrong with me, then I like don't fit in and I don't belong. And I have to now prove my worth to my friends and my peers and my teachers and my family and my community. Cause I know something's wrong with me and you can physically see it because it's my physical appearance. So that kind of drove me through elementary, junior high, high school. And what got really tricky is in junior high and high school when it's like you start getting interested in girls and I'm being the fat kid and girls aren't giving me attention. And so I'm like, oh, now I need to overcompensate and kind of figure out how to fit in. So I became the nice guy or became the funny guy. And like, really, I'm just craving. I'm like, someone, please give me attention. Please validate me. So that really drove me to like be captain of the football team, be student body vice president, like screaming people to love me. And then I have this mission moment where I've been like trying to prove myself, trying to get that validation love because I feel like something's wrong with me. I get home from my mission and it's like, I've really messed up. Now I really don't belong. Like I've really screwed up. And now I have like this big mountain, a big hurdle to climb to prove my worth in the world. Hmm. So you're like around 20 years old at this point, 20, 21, 20. After you were sent home, how did you regroup from there? Or were you just like completely lost? Take me on the journey from there. Yeah. So I'm kind of in this weird spot. And when you get home from a mission, I was like on this objective to be like, okay, I'm going to have six months of perfect behavior and I'm going to earn my worthiness back and I'm going to go back out and finish. You have that opportunity. So they're like, come home, perfect behavior, then we'll, we'll send you back out. But in that time, I'll never forget, I was like on track my dad calls me into the living room and announces that he has stage four colon cancer. 
And it was like life com- comes to a screeching halt. And for anyone who's not familiar with, you know, how the stages work, stage four colon cancer, it's a death sentence. You know, it's 99.5% of people don't recover from it. And it turns out that was such a blessing being sent home because I was able to, you know, 14 months after my dad was diagnosed, he passed away. So I, I was able to spend a lot of really good quality time with him before he passed. And I'll never forget, there was a moment I was sitting, my dad got hospice care. We had in-home hospice. It was maybe a night or two before he passed away. He was unconscious. And we're sitting, you know, it's 12 o'clock in the morning. We're at the base of the stairs. My mom puts her arm around me. And all of these emotions of sadness and grief and despair and loss just start to just come out and pour out for about four seconds. And then in my head, it was like, no, I need to be the tough guy. I'm the football player. I need to be strong for mom. I don't show emotion that's weak. I need to be the strong guy. And so I just cut it off and I just push these emotions back down in because I didn't want to show, I didn't want to show that I was weak. So I've been pushing this grief and sadness on top of emotions of, I don't belong in my community on top of, I'm the fat kid on top of, I'm not worthy. And so I'm just like, all of these emotions are just festering inside of me. And shortly after, right around the time my dad was dying, I came across this opportunity to get into sales. And there's door-to-door, it's a really fascinating industry, but the door-to-door sales industry is fascinating because there's uncapped commissions and you can sell all types of product door-to-door. And I got this opportunity and I started making a shit ton of money. And I started to see money come in really quickly based on production. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in control of how much I make. And then the story in my my head and the narrative became like, okay, if I don't fit into the community because I'm not Mormon. I don't want to deal with the emotion that my dad died. So I'm going to suppress it. And I'm the fat kid. I don't really belong, but society rewards those with money. So if I can go make a bunch of money and then show you how much money I have, then maybe the world and the community will validate me. Then I'll finally be enough. Then I'll have made it. (laughs) So I got obsessed with making money. I became a recruiter and I learned so many incredible skills leadership skills, recruiting skills, sales skills, management skills. And by the time I was 24, I'd made over a million dollars. I remember I was 21 years old. The year before I made like $18,000 in college. And then the next year I made over 400 grand. (laughs) And I'm 20. What what were you selling? I sold home security systems door to door. Okay. Was it like the type of company where you recruit people and they also are selling under you or? It's high commission sales and MLM together. Got it. I got tons of people underneath me and I recruited all my friends. The cool thing about it was that we were actually selling a really good product. It wasn't like sleazy at all. We were with a very like incredible company with an incredible product in the market. We were the first company to do smart home. So we could, you know, from your phone, you could unlock your doors and turn off your lights and had video cameras and no one else had that. And it was a really good product. And so we just found we were at the right market at the right place with the right product. And so it worked out really, really well. Like we, you know, we rode the gold, we found the gold, gold rush and hit it. And all of a sudden I'm 20 years old and making stupid money, feeling deeply unfulfilled and unlovable. And so I started spending that money like crazy. <laughs> what did you get? I mean, the first stop was to go buy the C63 AMG Mercedes, you know, for a hundred and some thousand. <laughs> and so I go pick up $116,000 Mercedes did you remove yourself from the Mormon community at this point or? No, I was like trying to earn my spot back. And okay. I thought that if I could show up in my Mercedes in the church parking lot, then that would like overcompensate for me being sent home. I guess it didn't work. Didn't work. And you know, but <laughs> I had a lot of fun, you know, along the way. But so I was, I'm a big sports guy, right? You would see me front row at the World Series, at the Super Bowl, at the NBA Finals, college football playoffs. I think, I think my peak experience was I flew down to Arizona. I can't remember the year. It was 2015. I think it was 2015. I flew down to the Super Bowl in Phoenix. The night before the Super Bowl, I was VIP at the W Hotel front row for Drake. And then the next day, I was in Dan Snyder, who owns the Redskins. I was in his suite sitting next to Kevin Durant, hanging out with Kevin Durant at the Super Bowl where the Seahawks threw the interception at the one-yard line. At least you got to buy some cool experiences. Yeah, that was a $14,000 ticket. (laughs) But where things started to change was, it was probably two weeks after the Super Bowl or a week after, I remember the NBA All-Star game was in Brooklyn that year. And I remember being on a flight to Brooklyn, to New York from Salt Lake City, 
And I remember thinking like, the only reason I'm going to the all-star game is so I can get a picture and post it on Instagram. Mm. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what is going on? And I did, I went to the all-star game and I got a picture and I think Kevin Hart and Nicki Minaj are right behind me in the background. And like, and I'm just like, what? Like, this was like a turning point. I remember feeling really lost. That was the first time I felt lost. It's like, I've done everything that I was supposed to do. I finally made the money, but like that didn't solve that deeper problem of not feeling accepted or validated or loved. And it's like, hey, I did the money thing. And it's not like I had like crazy FU money. I didn't have like a jet, but I was, I had everything that I wanted and enough. And I remember feeling like scared because it's like the church thing isn't really working and the money thing isn't really working. And I've gotten kind of like this validation at work and that's not working. And I just was trying to fix an internal problem with something external and it just wasn't working. Let's go back to, so your dad was sick for what you said, 14 months, 14 months. Yeah. How do you cope with grief after your dad had passed? I pretended like it didn't exist. You like completely ignored it. I changed my attention. I distracted myself in sales and money. Mm. Right. I'm not too familiar with like the way of life in the Mormon community, but how's like grief and loss looked at within the Mormon community? Yeah, I think they actually do a pretty good job, right? Like, you know, they have special experiences and there is, you know, within the Mormon faith, the true believers have a really beautiful message of like life after death and that you'll see your loved ones again, which is very peaceful. So my mom is a very active member of the LDS faith. And I'm glad that she has it because when my dad died, she had, you know, as tragic as that was for her, she has such a beautiful hope that she'll be with my dad again. So I think they do actually a fairly good job. But for me, it's just, I wasn't sure if the religion was even true. And so those messages didn't deeply resonate with me in that moment. So it was kind of like this weird gray in between area. Got it. Would you say like looking back, it sounds like basically your dad passed away and you put all your focus and just, I'm going to make as much money as I can. Yes. I didn't deal with it. Now looking back, I guess, did you deal with it in any way or really you just like ignored it as a whole? It was just something that I didn't want to talk about. Like I didn't know. And it wasn't that I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't know how to talk about it. I distinctively remember my best friend, Scotty, calling me after my dad had passed and being a really good, true friend was like, he was like, dude, I am here for you. Like, that's such a tragic experience. Like, what is going on? You know, anything, if you need anything, like, how are you doing? And I kind of was just like, yeah, man, I'm like, I'm doing pretty good. I'll let you know. And in like deep in my soul, I was screaming like, I'm not okay, but I didn't know how to express that. I was never taught how to handle and deal with my emotions because the moment it felt uncomfortable, right? Because deep feelings of sadness and grief and despair are not comfortable feelings. And the moment they would kind of sneak in, it was like, no, 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 I don't want to do this. We're not going here. Don't have that conversation. And so I would distract, fully distract myself. Got it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting hearing you say that. So I lost my dad at when I was 20 years old and mm. my mom when I was 25. Wow. And I've gotten to know a lot of people personally who have lost, who have lived through significant loss. And I really hope, especially via this podcast, it can serve as more of a beacon of hope for others who maybe are younger or who have lived through significant loss and just change the narrative because I'm hopeful more people learn to get more comfortable speaking about hardship, loss, tragedy, et cetera. Yeah. I remember when I finally dealt with it, it was actually through a psilocybin and we can get into the psychedelic conversation a little bit, but through a psilocybin experience, a healing psychedelic ceremony, I finally like faced the death of my father. I do want to get into obviously how you've used plant medicine, you know, yeah. obviously to, to grow and sounds like also as a tool as it relates to grief, et cetera. I want to jump into an early part in the book where, you know, you mentioned being stuck on that hamster wheel, keeping up with the Joneses mentality and really trying to figure out what the giant secret to life is. Yeah. Um, and I assume, you know, you're, you're talking about happiness there, you know, what enabled others to be happy or so happy. And you sort of finally realize that there is no secret. And I took a note here that you wrote that a life centered in self-love is all we truly need to enjoy the experiences we've been given here. We are all part of a larger whole and loving ourselves is the basis for genuinely being able to love and help others. Life is beautiful. Everything is exactly how it's supposed to be. There's no finish line we need to get to before we finally enjoy ourselves and help out the people we care about. 
We can just do it now. So I love that because I think oftentimes, especially in the society that we're living in today with social media, Instagram, and you know, you sort of touched upon it, how like, I think there's so many people posting on Instagram or doing things, showing that highlight reel, but maybe deep down there, deeply unhappy, not fulfilled. I love how you touch upon it early on in, in your book. What do you think leads society to thinking that like you need to this idea of, hey, when when I get there, then I'll be happy. I'm going to do X, Y and Z and then I'll finally be able to be happy, feel happy, etc. Yeah, that's a really loaded question. And along my journey, you know, like I said, I didn't have crazy money, but I was doing very well. I would stay at nice hotels. I would travel first class. I would bump into people every now and then that were like this glowing magnet of joy and enthusiasm and happiness and success. And everyone wanted to be their friend. And I'm sure you've met someone like that in your life where it's just like this person just has something going on. They have it all figured out. And I would see these people and I'm like, what do you know? Like you're in on a secret. Like, you know, something I don't know. Like, and I'm like, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to. I've got the car of the trips, you know, the money, like, what do you know? And I would see these people and I was so like flabbergasted because I didn't know what was going on. And then later on, as I started this healing journey, I had so many eye-opening experiences. And I think what's going on in my experience of Realize is kind of what I've shared earlier is that we all have a story. Something happened to us in our adolescence when we were in elementary school or junior high. It was a traumatic experience that it doesn't have to be like some crazy intense trauma, but something happened where we then believed that something was wrong with us that we're not good enough, like we don't fit the mold. And because we believe that, it's shaped our life. And my favorite quote, and I shared in the book, is from Carl Jung, philosopher and psychologist, who says, until we make the subconscious conscious, it will guide our life and we'll call it fate, right? So these stories are subconsciously guiding our life. In my situation, I was the fat kid, right? And I felt like because something was wrong with me, I then needed external validation to fill that void, right? And what happens is when you learn to love yourself, like I mentioned in that quote, when I fully learn to love myself for who I truly am, that need for external validation goes away. I'll always want external validation. We all love external validation, but I didn't need it anymore. I'd fill that void myself. And when you fill that void yourself of self-love, it gives you the permission and the confidence to express your truest, most authentic version of you into the world. Because it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks or says or does because you don't need their opinion of you to boost you up. You're already filled within. And so that's when I realized, like, oh, my gosh, the secret sauce is self-love, right? Because then you can truly be your unique, weird self because we're all weird. And you don't feel, <laughs> you don't feel hesitant of what you know, someone's going to post on Instagram. And I don't need to go post a picture of me on Instagram to get all these likes to fill that void. Mm. Yeah, I love all that. How did you find your way? It sounds like you tried like, or you were trying everything under the sun, biofeedback. I have no idea what that is. Biohacking, Burning Man, cryotherapy, flow tanks, fasting, DMT. Like how do you find your way to plant medicine? And and maybe you can just give a quick ramble off all the things that you did try from a 30,000 foot view. But how did you find your way to plant medicine? And would you say that that was, that had the greatest impact out of all the things you've tried? Like I've done not everything on that list, but flow tanks, I still participate in now. I love flow tank. Yeah, yeah I still, still yeah. obsessed with that. Cryotherapy, like I've done some of the things on your list. Would you say that the plant medicine was significantly different from the other things that you participated in? Plant medicine for me is for sure the most intense. Like it's like almost like a fast track cheat code to self-awareness, right? And where like you're where your stories are, where like the true garbage is deep inside of you, like it, it'll pull that out. It'll force you to look at the shit you don't want to look at. The plant medicine space, like you have no choice, but you have to deal with your shit. So it forces you. And that's why it's so profound because it really pulls deep subconscious stories out. So my journey into the plant medicine space is really, really unique and fun and weird. And that's why I wrote a book. So even if you're like not into this personal development, self-help space, just the story of how I found plant medicine is an incredible story to read. So where it started for me was, I was kind of in, like I said, this middle ground. I'm not sure what to do with my life and my career. And I came across a book called The Stealing Fire. And that's all about flow state, like how to get into the zone, whether you're a professional athlete or a musician or a surfer, when you're just like 
or an artist and your things are just flowing and coming naturally. So in my head, I'm like, oh, I would love to get more into flow state when I'm selling, when I'm leading and selling and managing. But I get to a part in the book where it talks about psychedelics. And at that point in my life, growing up in Mormon conservative culture, you're taught that basically every drug is methamphetamine. And if you do it one time, you'll become addicted, then homeless, and then you'll die. <laughs> and so like, there's this big blanket. So in this book, they're talking about the profound, deep, powerful effects of working with some of these plant medicines and the beautiful spiritual experiences you can have and the self-awareness that arises. And what really stuck to me was the quote from Steve Jobs, who said, doing LSD was one of the most profound experiences of my life. And I remember thinking, okay, here's Steve Jobs, like literally changed humanity. And he's looked up upon as probably the best entrepreneur and innovator in human history, one of them, right? And here he is talking about positive effects of working with some of these compounds. And I remember thinking like, oh, there's something here. Like there's something in this closet. And so per the universe, per coincidence, whatever you want to call it, two weeks later, I'm at a party and I get offered a compound. And I'd never, and I've never been offered before. And I remember thinking like, I have to go see what's down the rabbit hole. I have to check this out. So I have this experience on June 10th, 2017. And I talk about the significance of that date in the book, but it was so profound. My first experience, it literally shattered my constructs of reality and left me so vulnerable and awe. And I was seeing energy and connecting with others deeply and seeing auras and like connecting with, I felt like I, that night I correct connected with the creator for the first time ever. And it just blew me open so deeply that that was like the start of my hero's journey. And that left me so curious about the space that then I went and tried everything. I'm like, okay, I need to go figure out what's going on because something is not what it seems. What I thought was truth is not, and I need to go figure this out. So that led me to cryotherapy, burning man, biohacking, neurofeedbacks, hiring spiritual gurus, meditation coaches, float tanks, tons of yoga, 5-MeO-DMT, ayahuasca, psilocybin, fear coaches, therapy, psychologists, tr moving to Bali, like you name it, like Reiki, tarot cards, crystal. I mean, I tried everything. I'm like, oh, I don't know what's true, so I'm going to give it all a shot. Mm. There's a lot of stuff that didn't resonate with me at all. And I'm like, yeah, that was nothing. That was woo-woo, weird bullshit stuff. But a lot of them left really profound marks on me. The first time you took a plan, man, what did you take? So here's what's really crazy. And I still don't have an explanation for this today. And it seems more, but that first night I took MDMA and I've done MDMA multiple times since, but my first initial MDMA experience, it was a crazy hallucinogenic experience and it felt like DMT. And it was the most profound MDMA experience ever. Still to this day, I've done 5-MeO DMT with the toad. And that first night on MDMA was almost just as crazy as that which is so incredibly rare and it makes no sense. And I don't know why that happened to me my first night, but it left me so incredibly raw and vulnerable that I kept like searching down the rabbit hole. So you took it more in like a party setting, not even in a formal like intention setting or right. You took it more in just like you were out and about. So I was, I was at a cabin and I took it at this party and it like blew me into another dimension. And I go through detail in the book, but like I was literally in another dimension. And then I had this moment, I'm like, oh shit, I'm actually having an incredibly different experience than everyone else here. And so I quickly removed myself from the party and like went up to upstairs to like to be in a bedroom by myself and just lay on this bed and had these crazy experiences and like was downloading what I believe. And I'm not saying they're truth, but from how I interpreted it to be like really like incredible insights on my life. What would you say is like the single biggest thing that it taught you? It connected me to it showed me in the way I interpret it that there is a creator that loves me like infinite love I had access to infinite love and connection and it showed me that there are divine workings behind a veil that we can't see almost like the mechanisms that create this experience I was like I pierced the veil it's almost like seeing through the matrix and I was like, oh, there's a whole other reality and intelligence behind this experience that we can't see with our normal functioning senses. Did you go after that and do it in a more traditional ceremonial type setting? Yeah, after that, I've never done it recreationally. I've only worked with these plant medicines in true therapy with 
right facilitators, right set, setting, intentions, and for healing. And so after that, my next experience after that was I did a hero's dose of psilocybin mushrooms with a blindfold on with the intention of doing some inner work. What's a hero's dose? And what's like a recreational dose? And what's a microdose? Just just so like our listeners can have a sense. When I do microdose, which I do very rarely, I take like 150 milligrams of psilocybin, very low. A recreational dose is like half a gram to 1.5 grams. I took six grams the first time I ever did it, which is a shit ton. And I, <laughs> I don't think I'll ever do that again. It was so intense. Um, but I took six grams and I put on a blindfold and laid on a bed with a, with a healer. And it was really, really powerful. It was really transformative. And I dealt with a lot of trauma and got a lot of insights. And that's, you know, that was the experience where I finally like, was willing to face the death of, death of my father. It was funny because like in that experience, not funny, but it was cool because in that experience, there was this massive rush of grief and despair and sadness that tried to come up seven years earlier and I pushed it down. And it was almost like in that experience, it was a continuation. It was like, okay, seven years later, now we can finish. And so I was grieving and wailing and crying and really feeling the loss of, you know, someone who was so close to me. And I really felt it through my whole body. And, you know, not just mentally, but physically, like in my, I could feel the pain in my body and my arms and my legs. And I remember when I had like moved through that experience, I took this like breath. It was like this big, like, (sighs) and it felt like I could breathe for the first time in seven years. And I was like, wow. I'm like, this is what it feels like to breathe. I haven't been able to breathe for seven years because I was storing the trauma and the loss of my father. And it was such a beautiful, it was such a, just a beautiful moment. So someone listening to this, like including myself, I guess, I've never taken a a hero's dose, obviously, of mushrooms or any plant medicine, but certainly intrigued, certainly curious. Some people might listen to this and say, well, why can't you reach that point without the plant medicine? I'm curious, how, how do you feel that the plant medicine enables you to reach that or dig deeper beyond maybe the surface layer that we see or feel in an everyday life, what does the plants, what do the plants enable you to do and how do they enable you to, to get to that point? Yeah, it's a really great question. First off, I'm not a professional. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical advisor. So I, I'm, I mean, this is, I'm just speaking from my personal experiences. So if you're interested in the space, I would absolutely seek professionals guidance rather than mine. I'm in no way qualified to speak to that field, but It's really interesting because until you've had the experience, it's really hard to understand. But what, in my experience, through working with plants, is that they do a phenomenal job of getting your ego out of the way, right? And they remove yourself from a situation. Because right now, given a certain situation, I have biases, and I have perceptions, and I have stories of how situations may be. And when you take the plants, you almost like zoom out above yourself. And having no attachment to Doug, I'm almost like viewing Doug from a third person. And I can see very clearly how I'm like harming myself or doing silly things because I'm not in my ego. And so when I'm not trying to protect Doug from dealing the grief and pain and sadness of my dad dying, because that's a really intense feeling. And I'm like third eye view. And I'm like, yeah, maybe you should deal with that. Like you should go through that because you're, I'm holding the trauma. You're holding the weight of that. And I could see that I was holding this weight for so much that was so unnecessary and it was so ready to release. And in that state of mind, I felt safe and comfortable to go there. I mean, if you've never had the psilocybin or psychedelic experience, it's, it's almost impossible to describe because it is so non-ordinary. But these compounds, I, I believe the mushroom is such an incredible teacher. And it's really like, this sounds really weird. And I, and I would have thought it was weird too and previously before working with them. But like you can, the plants communicate with you in those experiences. Like you can talk to the mushroom and it's like, it has its own intelligence of its own that like will guide you. I've heard people say similarly, I guess, describe it in a similar way where you're viewing yourself from above or a distance. I've heard it be described that way before. Was mushrooms different from ayahuasca or some of the other plants that you've tried? Yeah, I mean, ayahuasca is just a whole nother beast. I mean, it is so incredibly intense. It is so profound. It's very cosmic because the world, it's like you're literally like flying through the cosmos. It feels like you're being transported into another universe. 
It's like someone, you take this psychedelic tea from the Amazon, the ayahuasca, and it's very ceremonial. It's very sacred. It's very, it's, it's done with the intention of healing and getting insights. It's also a very difficult experience. It's not like you're like getting high and having fun. I actually hate doing ayahuasca because it's really difficult and hard mentally and physically, but the insights you're getting are so incredibly profound and you deal with a lot of stuff. It really dives deep into your psyche and it pulls out these intense traumatic experiences so you can deal with them. So a prime example of, you know, with ayahuasca for me, it was my fourth ceremony ever. So I was sexually abused when I was six years old and it wasn't malicious. It was my best friend at the time who was eight and he was just curious and he would pull my pants down and like, you know, would touch me inappropriately. And I was confused. I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, what did like, and I was scared and I knew that it was wrong but I was also embarrassed and it was a really intense experience. And so I remember not telling anyone about it. I didn't want to tell my mom. I don't tell my friends. It was kind of like, I kind of just pushed that really deep down inside. And what's fascinating is when he was 16 and I was 14, he got in a car accident and passed away. He died in a car accident. And I remember when I heard the news, my initial feeling was relief. So it was like, okay, good. Now that secret is literally going to the grave. And the, almost the visual I put in my head was like, okay, I'm going to take that secret. I'm going to put it in a chest. I'm going to put a padlock on it. I'm going to bury it deep, deep, deep down. And we're never going there ever again. It's gone. And so I'm in the psych ayahuasca ceremony. I drink the psychedelic tea. It starts to kick in. And I start thinking of these memories. These memories could pop up. And I'm like, why am I thinking about this? I haven't thought about this in years. Like, why am I thinking about this memory right now? And then I'm like, oh, wait, this is what these experiences do. They bring up stuff we need to face that we may not feel like we need to face. And so I leaned into it and I went down the stream and I relived the experiences and I was in the room where it happened and it was like really intense experience. And like I said, you can talk to the medicine, which sounds really woo-woo and weird, but like I'm asking the plant, I'm like, you know, why are you showing me this again? What do I need to deal with? And then it played out this crazy scenarios how in that moment, my best friend showed me that he was unsafe. And that, that your guy friends are unsafe. And then it showed me how through my life, through junior high, high school, college, I always had a little bit more difficult time making guy friends. I had a lot of girl space friends, a lot of platonic friends, but I had trouble making guy friends. And it showed me is because I created a subconscious story that men aren't safe. And so I had massive walls up when I would meet a new guy because it's like, I don't know your intentions. I don't know if you're going to, take advantage of me. And so I was really difficult and very unapproachable to other guys. And so it was difficult for me to make new guy friends. And then afterwards, being exposed to that situation and then working with, you know, integration so important that it's working with a therapist along that. I've now realized that like, oh my gosh, it's actually really, really normal to have guy friends and to make new guy friends. And it's not weird. And it was like such a relief of my life. And so that's a really good example of how these subconscious stories are guiding our life. We're not even aware of it and how these plants can then help us heal those stories. Hmm. So it sounds like though, like ayahuasca, you just generally don't like, is it too intense? Is that? Yeah. I mean, I like it in the sense where I get these insights like that. I just shared and it's beautiful and it's like, okay, now I can live a cool, more normal life. But for me, it's really intense because I'm like communicating with like weird entities from other dimensions. And I'm not saying this is true. This might just be the way my brain conceptualizes the experience. But it's like I'm breaking through like these realms of reality that are really, really profound. And I'm like, I kind of lose touch of reality. And it's kind of like, I'm just like in a scary middle ground. And it's also very, you purge, kind of feel like this intense emotions and people throw up during ayahuasca. I, for whatever reason, I've never thrown up on ayahuasca, but like, it's a release and you're dealing with really intense emotions again. So it's like, yeah, you probably know you need to go deal with the death of your father, but the actual experience of dealing with the death of your father is going to be full of grief and sadness and despair. And you have to go through that. That's not a fun experience. Like, you know, yeah. it's not a joyful experience, but you know that if you do it, it probably will give you a lot of benefit into your life. With like a hero's dose of mushrooms, does that still take you to those dark places to work through or? Yeah, it can. That's the one thing with mushrooms for me. Everyone's different. Everyone reacts differently to these experiences. But like for mushrooms, for me, like for anything over four grams, you don't know which way it's going. Like if it's going dark and weird, it's going dark and weird and you can't really pull yourself out of it. You kind of just have to surrender to where the mushroom takes you. And so for me, 
where I'm at now, it's like, if I'm going to go do a hero's dose, I might as well go do ayahuasca. Cause like, if I'm going to go there, like, let's go there. And so I don't really have fun doing mushrooms. Like, you know, it's interesting because I've done such deep work in high dosages. Like I can't go have like a fun recreational experience on a low dose because it still like kind of trips me out. So I don't, I rarely, rarely, rarely work with mushrooms anymore just because like, I feel like I've done a lot of the heavy lifting work and it's like, now I'm like, I feel like I'm going to point my life to go really enjoy the benefits of doing the work. You've obviously had all these experiences from plant medicine. How do you view money now and happiness now as a result of all the journeys you've been on from the plants? Yeah, I don't think money's bad. I think making money is great. I think the biggest difference because of the plants was before I was using money and status and experiences to solve my internal problem. I was hoping something outside of me would make me heal me inside. So it's like, I need the money to feel better. I need the car so I get validation. I need the super hot, pretty girlfriend to show everyone that I've, you know, if this beautiful woman likes me, then I'm accepted. And after working with the plants, I went internally and fixed those things myself. And I healed those things internally. And now it's like, cool, I can go make tons of money. And that's a great experience. And I can go start a business. And that's fun. But it's like, I don't need those things outside of me to fill the void internally. I feel that myself. So then it's like, sure, go have a business, start a family and go travel for fun. And you don't need it to feel good. Because you could tell yourself, obviously, like you are enough, or Mm -hmm. I'm happy with where I'm at here and now. Yeah. You know, you could wake up and write that in a journal every single day. Do you feel that the plant medicine engraves that more into an actual deep rooted belief as opposed to just saying like, I am enough? Yes, it can. But I think plant medicine exposes the truth, the real reason you're not happy. Because there's a reason you think you're not happy. And then there's the real reason. And so all the plant medicines do is that it shows you your actual homework. Right. Mm -hmm. And a simple way I think you can diagnose it just because we have multiple stories we tell about ourselves, but a simple way to diagnose it is I always ask like, what are you trying to hide from the world? Like, what would you be absolutely like terrified if the world found out about you? And what's the story you tell about yourself about why you're not enough? Is you're too tall, you're too skinny, you're, you're fat, you're ugly, your eyes are too close together, you're balding, you, you think you're dumb, you think no one understands you, you know, do you have substance abuse issue, do you have debt? What are you trying to hide from the world, right? And then lean into that experience. You know, where did you learn that? Who told you that? What was your first memory of that happening? And that's a really good place to start if you don't want to work with the plants. So it's more the the homework really starts after once you sort of recognize the truth and the flaws or the problems, you have to sort of tackle them when you're done with your journey or with, you know, whatever you just experienced. Yeah, I mean, the reality is all these plants do is they just give you your homework, Right. If you're not going to integrate and make changes, there's no really point in doing it. But it just gives you like a very clear outline where it's like, this is the stuff you need to work on. You thought you needed to work on A, but really need to work on B. Got it. Yeah. You know, it it crushes me when, and I know we kind of touched upon this at the beginning of the show, but it crushes me when I hear people say, I just need X, Y, and Z, and then then I'll be good. People are waiting for their ship to come in. It's not coming in. I think you also realize that or learn with time, regardless with plant medicine or without, I think the idea of getting there is it's always a moving target. And at least this has been my personal experience with anything really. But once you get there, you just set a new destination a little bit further out and you start chasing the newer, better thing that, and now you have a little bit more experience, maybe a better network, more knowledge, more wisdom. And you say, oh, I can achieve something that I didn't think I could achieve before. And now I'm not not happy with what once was the thing that I thought would make me happy because I'm trying to get to that next place. Yeah, I call it happy when syndrome in my book. I'll be happy (laughs) when, when I get the body, when I get the partner, when I get the car, when I get the promotion, when I launch a business, once I launch my book and the happy when never comes. And so the message I'm really trying to purvey, like I said, this isn't a book about psychedelics. You know, that was the tool I used that proved the most beneficial for me, but you don't need psychedelics to get here. You don't need to do these intense experiences. You, there's a lot of other ways to get there. But the end goal is, you know, the biggest realization I made was when I truly learned to love myself for where I am right now and loving this version of me exactly the way it is, life switched from a problem to solve to an experience to be had. I stopped trying to solve the problem, 
right? I love myself. I love where I'm at. I'm in this beautiful planet with beaches and mountain ranges and people and connections and food and experiences and music. What cool things can I create for me because I love myself and I love my experience. But to get there, to get to that point, we have to go pull out some of the garbage and the blockages that are stopping you and and giving you that self-doubt that you're not worthy or you're not enough. Mm. As corny as that sounds. Yeah, I mean, I I love it. For listeners who might be interested in trying psychedelics in an intentional way, I guess, what would you recommend? Yeah, I mean, the way it stands right now, it's illegal in the United States. And so I can't technically recommend anything, right, because of legality issues. But um, there are, I know that it's legal in Costa Rica, ayahuasca especially, and in Peru. And I've never personally have been to Rhythmia, which is a retreat center in Costa Rica, but I have people that have been to Rhythmia and have had great experiences. And so I can't give a recommendation from a personal experience, but from people that I trust and care about and love, they've had good experiences. And so that's where I would start is with with me. And what's really cool too, is that there's amazing work going on with MAPS and John Hopkins University working to legalize some of these substances. So I think if you're not in a rush, I think in the next two to four years, it'll be legal to go to a doctor, get prescribed a session with psilocybin in a safe set and a safe setting with a correct facilitator. So I think those are the things that are most important because I have seen it go south and have difficult experiences when you don't take care of the precautionary steps. Yeah. I had a friend who recently went somewhere, I don't think overseas, somewhere somewhere out, out of the US. And he said that his experience, it was he feels it was like the ultimate hack. I agree. From my personal experience, ayahuasca, I think, is the world's best kept secret. Mm. Well, Doug, we could start to wrap up this episode. You know, my podcast is all about waking up, finding your purpose, building your dream life. With that being said, what would be your bits of gold on how to build a life you love? You know, just to reiterate what I've said, learn to love yourself. It's the ultimate superpower. Lean into the pieces you don't love. Learn to love them because like I said, it gives you the confidence, the permission to express the truest, most authentic version into the world because you no longer need anyone else's approval to shine. Love it. Where can our listeners find you, connect with you, buy the book? Yeah, the book is live on Amazon. Holy shit, we're alive. I would love if you bought a copy and I would love to hear your feedback on it. If you have questions or comments or feedback, please shoot me a DM on Instagram at Doug underscore Cartwright. I would love to hear about your journey. Awesome. Well, Doug, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, my friend. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you like this episode, please take a minute, share it with a friend. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.